This week on Making Contact. I see as some of the symptoms of gentrification, the proliferation of charter schools, the increase in police brutality, and the major development from downtown LA, so that it's now spilling into, into Bull Heights, where uh, developers are coming into Bull Heights, they're buying apartment buildings, they're renovating them, jacking up the rents, and evicting folks. Two neighborhoods, Boyle Heights in Los Angeles and Crown Heights, Brooklyn, New York. Both are experiencing the effects of gentrification, and some are taking action against those who would cash in on the eviction and displacement of longtime residents. The truth is, after two protests towards your business, you're still here defending, right? And as you're saying those words, it's as though you don't understand that you have offended an entire community. That was New York Assemblymember Diana Richardson. She was speaking to the owner of the Summerhill restaurant in Crown Heights. Numbers from 2013 on citydata.com put Crown Heights at a population of just under 130,000 people. That's for Crown Heights, North and South, and a majority of residents are of African descent. Making Contact contributor Otis Gray went to Crown Heights and brings us this story. In July of 2017, a new restaurant opened up on the corner of St. Mark's and Nostrand Avenue, also known as James E. Davis Avenue. The restaurant's name is Summerhill. It's the newest addition to a busy residential neighborhood where West Indian and Caribbean heritage run deep. Outside of Summerhill, the facade is blue and white with big open windows. It's a contrast to its neighbors, like Lionheart, a Jamaican natural herbs and spices shop across the street, and Key Food, a low-cost grocery store on the same block. Summerhill is marketed as an open-air, boozy, surf club kind of joint where you can sit and have a drink while looking onto the street. The owner of this restaurant is named Becca Brennan. I'm from Toronto, and I own a restaurant, Summerhill. While Becca's originally from Canada, she's been living in Crown Heights for about two years now. She has a background in law and event planning, but recently she pivoted her life to go into the food business. While I'm talking with Becca at the bar, she gets distracted by something on her phone, and she shows it to me. Oh, gosh. Yep, you stink, you stupid little racist That's the emails I get. Five weeks after Becca opened, she sent out a press release to different publications advertising Summerhill. In it, she says that Summerhill is Crown Heights' most Instagrammable hangout with a boardwalk vibe and a killer cross breeze. It advertises their summery cocktails and then alludes to the rumored backroom gun shop that was part of the bodega that used to occupy the space. It talks about the interior of the restaurant and in parentheses says, yes, that bullet hole ridden wall was originally there and yes, we're keeping it. The wall is was here when I got here and it has um, holes that are obviously anchor holes and it looks cool, it looks great, it looks like art. While the holes in the wall are damaged from the last tenants in the space, they really could pass as bullet holes. She started Instagramming photos of cocktails in front of the wall and also began advertising rosé in 40-ounce bottles. A writer from the website Gothamist went to Summerhill, interviewed Becca, and wrote an article that went viral. Within the next week, the internet and the community responded. News of Summerhill went international, with many people saying that Becca was a distilled example of a white gentrifier 
trying to capitalize off of negative black stereotypes by exploiting the neighborhood's history of violence and poverty. During the first gathering, she did not come out to speak to the protesters, but afterward, she did issue an apology on the internet. I mean, you don't want to offend anyone, and you're, uh, I'm a human being, so if I offend someone, you apologize, right? Like, you, you honestly don't want them to think that it was on purpose or to be mean. Um, so I apologize. You know, that's what you do as a human being. You apologize if you were offended and you move on with your lives. I'm not, I'm not apologizing for the wall. I'm apologizing if anyone thought that I would ever try to capitalize on violence or I'm sorry if anyone actually believed that those were bullet holes. You know, that's what I was sorry about, that my sarcasm didn't translate into print. In the apology, she didn't say that she was going to modify or plaster over the wall. She said she was keeping it to preserve the history and the architecture of the building. But she did get rid of the 40-ounce bottles of rosé. So I, I think the bottles are really cute. Um, I don't think it has anything to do with race. It has to do with, it has to do with something, but it's not race. The neighborhood saw this apology as insincere and berated her for not taking down the wall after they made it clear how they felt about it. So a second protest was organized just a few weeks later. Um, I think that's the first time I heard the bye bye Becky thing. Bye bye Becky! Bye bye Becky! Um, so they start chanting. White supremacy's got to go! It's just tough to see so much like hatred and anger and like it's been really incredible to watch somebody bear through it all, you know? This is Ken. He's a bartender at Summerhill. By association, Becca's employees have also felt the wrath of the protesters and the internet, even though almost all of them are people of color from within the community. Taking a business employee and like exposing them to having picked a political side because of a controversial issue, like that's horrible and irresponsible of the community. Don't put that on her employees, they're just trying to make a living. Ken is a Latino son of two immigrants. He's seen Crown Heights change in the last six years that he's lived here, and he says he's very aware of the cultural issues regarding the wall. I'm not blind to the mistakes she's made, and I think maybe like it should be clear that I'm pretty open about like the things that I feel she's done wrong or right. At the end of the day, like I just work here, right? It's like I gotta show up to work, I just gotta do my job well. The owner's good to me, she's good to the people that I work with who are all like community locals. Like, I think it's just a wall, like plaster it because during the protest, Becca sat at a table outside in front of the crowd, clashing with protesters and doing a crossword puzzle. She's literally doing a crossword puzzle in front of us. Which she says she does every Sunday. There is a handful of people in the community that have come to Becca's defense. So I go there, I, I go to the establishment. I was there, I ate last night. I, I go there all the time. I invite my friends and she's a great lady. I think she uh, does help the black people in the community because she has black workers, black bartenders, she has, uh, she helps the kids, black kids with their homework. That's what I have seen with this lady, but I don't know why she's so uh, adamant to make that change on the wall. I, I, I just can't see. Community representatives and local civil rights groups got together to plan an emergency town hall meeting. Their goal is to invite Becca and the community to exchange ideas in a civil setting. I'm going to sit here and I'm going to listen. Please take your time. We got 90 seconds. Take your time and express yourself. It can be emotional. 
Jeffrey Davis is a district representative here, and he is the brother of former councilman and NYPD officer James E. Davis, who the street is named after. Jeffrey is a longtime activist and has tirelessly fought to end gun violence in memory of his brother, who was shot and killed at New York City Hall in 2003. Jeffrey was the one mediating the town hall. One at a time, try to remain calm, express yourself for those who support Summer Hill, for those who don't support Summer Hill, and why. The next hour and a half was filled with passionate testimonies with Becca saying very little. One of the most poignant voices was that of locally elected assemblywoman, Diana Richardson. Because the truth is you just don't get it. The truth is after two protests towards your business, you're still here defending, right? And as you're saying those words, it's as though you don't understand that you have offended an entire community. You have just come to this community. I don't think anyone in this room wants to continue to protest you, wants to continue to fight with you, but what they're calling on is for you to respect them. And so you can say one thing out your mouth, but your body language, your stature, when he said, would you change? You said, change what? What don't you get about what you need to change? You understand? The, the, the holes on the wall is offensive. People have died in this community. There's nothing about the architecture to, pre to protect, you know? And so I'm wondering if you're out of touch. I'm wondering if you're out of touch. And the truth is, you are out of touch. Can you kind of try to put yourself in our shoes and see it from our standpoint of view? You know, do you get it? Are you trying to get it? Are you willing to get it? Do you want to be a part of this community? Or we'll protest you every day. You don't want an uprising from this community. No, no, no. You don't want one. So as you are coming to this, humble yourself before us. Because we are the community. of a, a true apology to the community because people here are hurt. And people yeah. here today want to hear something that resembles an apology and not something that's half-hearted. Please help There was no ill intention. There was no malice. There was, there was, and there was offense taken, and I immediately apologized that offense was taken. It wasn't enough. You moved the goalposts. So, I'm sorry I have a sense of humor. So, um, as a At the end, Jeffrey Davis is making his closing remarks and talking about how the community can come to a resolution. We At this point, Becca gets up and she leaves before he's finished. Some folks in the crowd could only look on in disbelief, shaking their heads as they watched her leave the meeting. I talked with Davis afterward, and he said the town hall was a success. We gave her an opportunity to express herself, and I listened and I heard, and, I thank, and I'm thankful that she did come. So that was great on her part to, to listen, and I'm going to sleep on it. I'll call another meeting, not with the business owner, and we'll talk about it amongst ourselves on what direction to proceed. You don't want to invite her to that? No, there's no need to. She expressed herself. If you don't partnership with the community, with us, then we won't patronize your establishment. And then the word will spread because we're a tight-knit community. And once the word spreads that we're not going to patronize there, it's just a matter of time before your doors close. And just down the road on James E. Davis Avenue, Becca sees a bright future for Summerhill.
I'm optimistic. We're just having a great time. Jokes on all of you, this is bringing me closer to people because people come in and we learn each other's sides and thoughts and histories and done more good in terms of just my relationship with my, a lot of my neighbors and harm. While Summerhill's story may seem black and white from the outside, there are still those caught in the many gray areas somewhere in the middle. People like Ken, the bartender, who I asked if he had a moral issue working for a place that the community rejects. I mean, I struggle with that, yeah, for sure. Yeah, the dirty looks from the outside don't feel good. I'm, I work in hospitality. I work to make people happy and smile and be joyful and like have unforgettable experiences. In it. So like when people are just like, yeah, I don't care if you, you work at that place or feel that way, like, yeah, it's, that sucks, man. Like, it really, it's really unfortunate. As of today, the world is watching. The fate of Summerhill remains uncertain and Crown Heights continues to change. Brooklyn is no stranger to gentrification and its neighborhoods are constantly welcoming new businesses. However, there are decades of history and context in these streets. When that's ignored, those communities that have seen it all will unite and mobilize, as they've done countless times before. Thank you so much, Father God. Thank you for every member of our community that is here. We all come from different places, but we are one community, one Crown Heights, Father God. And we just ask that you allow us to remain unified. Don't let race divide this community, Father God. And don't let anyone come into our community that seeks to destroy us. Amen. Father God, we will always turn to you. We will always say thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Reporting from Brooklyn, New York, from Making Contact, I'm Otis Gray. You're listening to Making Contact, a tale of two heights. Thanks to the generous support of listeners like you, this show is offered for free to stations in the U.S., Canada, Australia, and South Africa. Subscribe to our podcast. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Coming up, we'll hear how a neighborhood on the West Coast is responding to the most recent effects of gentrification. We now go to the neighborhood of Boyle Heights, just east of downtown L.A. Over the past few years, it's become a premium location for landlords and speculators. First come the artists. That's Claudia Medina, an attorney with Eviction Defense Network. She's explaining how people in her neighborhood were priced out of their homes in the early 2000s. That's what happened in Echo Park, the art galleries that opened up um, where Echo Park Avenue and Morton, I think it's Morton, meet. Those art galleries were symbolic of the rapid gentrification that happened in that neighborhood. So, for example, the art galleries with their openings, right? So you would bring in a lot of um, people like that time that could afford art or could afford to go to those venues as, you know, a luxury. Um, Even when I would talk to people back then, this feeling of, oh, my God, I always thought that Echo Park was so dangerous. And now coming here to the art shows, I realize it's not, I didn't get mugged. (laughs) where I lived. (laughs) My name is Carlos Montes with Centro CSO Community Service Organization based in Boyle Heights. In 2015, the first of several commercial art galleries started moving into Boyle Heights, 
They were very visible, and they were very white, and they were in your face, and they were near what they call the flats. The flats is, uh, is a traditional uh, community in Ball Heights where you have the projects, the Pico Gardens Project, Aliso Village Project, the traditional uh, neighborhoods of Cuatro Flats, Primera Flats, where you have a history of organizing that the mothers have organized for years for peace and for uh, tenants' rights and housing rights. So the thing with the galleries, they were, uh, they were like very, um, you know, coming in and setting up these fancy galleries. They were primarily white. They didn't have any connection to the neighborhood. They had no connection to the, to the residents at all. So they were look like outsiders coming in to try to take advantage of, uh, of the space of the empty warehouses. So an activist coalition formed and called themselves Defend Boyle Heights. It's, it's a very new group, maybe two years old. And it's really not a, uh, an organization, it's actually a grouping of several organizations. Now those groups together have uh, raised the issue of uh, gentrification by targeting the uh, galleries coming into Ball Heights on the west side of Ball Heights near the river. Defend Ball Heights is a coalition that includes different groups that, uh, from different parts of the community, mostly very young people who have, have, have joined the, the fight against gentrification, and the Unión de Vecinos is part of that coalition. Leonardo Vilchis is co-director of Unión de Vecinos. We really got uh, very frustrated because of the silence of other nonprofits and other leaders with respect to the gentrification process and that uh, we were seeing the effects that was having on the most poor. I mean, the, the Union de Vecinos has always worked with the most poor co- people in the community. I mean, we, we work with the homeless, we work with street vendors, we work with people who make less than $25,000 a year, and even l- less families that are very, very low income. And uh, there is very little going on when it comes to development, quote-unquote development, that, that impacts and improves the life of this community. So when the Fainball Heights comes out and starts uh, resisting the, the push of the galleries and the arts industry and the arts entrepreneurs into Ball Heights, we decided to join that, that battle. Over time, we've seen the, the industrialization around the factories, which open up the space for these galleries. And uh, the galleries are basically now are galleries that are connected to money in New York, in Germany, across the world. And it's mostly money that is going to change the face and, and, and the character of, of, the, of the neighborhood, the local neighborhood, which in turn threatens against the public housing. I mean, threatens the public housing again. It threatens the housing of the very low-income families who live in, in Boyle Heights. And, uh, and it's a, a, a cultural wave, basically, that is trying to reshape, redesign, redefine what Boyle Heights is. Carlos Montes. One error that I see that it was a major error, they targeted self-help graphics, which has been a, a 45-year-old uh, grassroots Chicano-based art center. They targeted them erroneously and called for the boycott of the, uh, of the organization, which I thought was a big error. I think they should have focused on the galleries that were coming from the outside to boycott those galleries and get the galleries out. Boyle Heights is bordered by the L.A. River to the west, Indiana Street to the east, Mission and Marengo to the north, and to the south, just before the L.A. River cuts through Soto Street. Soto Street Elementary School is where Anglo teachers gave my grandmother an English name because they were unwilling to learn her name in Spanish. But that was Boyle Heights 
and Los Angeles in the 1930s. At that time, Mexicans and Mexican-Americans were not as welcome in the U.S. The Great Depression was on, and in the span of 10 years, so-called Mexican repatriation saw anywhere from half a million to two million people deported to Mexico. It's estimated that 60% of those who were deported were Mexican-Americans born in the U.S. This was also a time when Boyle Heights was more ethnically mixed. Racially restrictive covenants prohibited all kinds of people from buying land or living in homes in other parts of the city. So people of Mexican, Japanese, Russian, Jewish, Italian descent all found themselves living in close proximity to each other east of the L.A. River and in Boyle Heights. They moved into houses and the newer large-scale apartment complexes and projects built in the 1930s and 40s. But as whites slowly moved to other parts of the city, and World War II saw Japanese Americans removed to concentration camps, the ethnic makeup of Boyle Heights became a Latino, primarily Mexican neighborhood. It wasn't until the passage of the Fair Housing Act in 1968 that redlining and restrictive covenants were made illegal. Nearly three decades later, the federal government moved to demolish and rebuild public housing. Leonardo Vilchis. This was a hope six project. It was a plan to demolish 100,000 units of public housing across the country without really replacing any of the housing that was being lost. In the case of Pico Aliso, we lost about two-thirds of the housing. 900 families were displaced out of the community. 900 units were lost. And uh, to this day, that housing hasn't come back. And the people who got their vouchers and certificates are living in communities that are very similar to Boyle Heights in the 1980s a very desperate community with lots of violence and very lack of, very, uh, lacks of services. The Hope Six project affected the poorest Americans in cities across the country. California Congresswoman Maxine Waters addressing the House in 2008. The administration eliminated the one-for-one -one replacement requirement in 1996, effectively triggering a national sloughing off of our nation's public housing inventory. For us, for Unión de Vecinos, gentrification started in 1996 with the demolition of the housing projects. A lot of people had promised that this was going to be an improvement in the community. But what we saw is that every time that the city or the government or some corporation was coming and saying, here's an improvement for you, a bunch of families were pushed out. So first we have the demolition of the projects, 900 families lost. Then we have the expansion of the gold line, about 200 families that lose their housing. Then you have the expansion of the police department, 65 families. Then you have the expansion of the general hospital. So public investment, about $3 billion of public investment, were pushing people out, uh, supposedly to improve the community. So we started realizing that the poor were the sacrificial lambs of development in Boyle Heights. The Battle of Chavez Ravine was an infamous episode in the history of forced displacement of people of color in Los Angeles. Chavez Ravine is where Dodger Stadium was built. Using eminent domain, landowners were informed that their land was to be used as the site of a public housing project. After families sold their land, the housing project was canceled, and the remaining families who'd refused to sell were forced to leave. Three years later, 
the first pitch was thrown at Dodger Stadium. But it's 2017 and times have changed, right? There are no repatriation efforts in this country. We don't use eminent domain to evict poor people for public works projects that may or may not come to fruition. So how are residents being forced to leave their homes? Eviction defense attorney Claudia Medina. I feel like these are conversations that happen in real estate circles and landlord circles where they see it as, okay, if you could just get rid of that tenant that's in a rent-controlled unit, you could hike up the rent. So there's a big bullseye on that tenant or those tenants in a particular unit. So a lot of landlords already, they already have this intent of buying up a property that's occupied by long-term rent control tenants, usually low income, and then they start harassment tactics. That's common, like they'll do that to the entire building. They'll go in within a few months of buying, they start um, serving a bunch of um, notices to quit and from there, eviction cases. And they bank on these tenants then not getting an attorney. And that's what happens. And this is what um, landlords rely on. And some of those tactics from a landlord's perspective might be, we're intentionally going to make it hard for you to pay your rent. And then we're going to claim that you didn't want to pay your rent. They, uh, they will pretend they didn't get it. And how we know that they're pretending and they're lying about not getting it is because they're doing it to all the units. So how is it that a bunch of your units mailed their rent to this one address that you provided landlord? And how is it that you didn't get any of their rents? Since when is the United States Postal Service that unreliable? Or um, getting tenants to sign documents they don't understand. For example, a tenant um, lives there with five people, and a, ten- a landlord comes around and says, sign this document. And the document says, oh, you agree that you're only going to have two people. Um, knowing that that tenant has never had two people, they've always had five people, and now the landlord turns around and says, oh, you're violating your lease. Medina's been doing this work for 17 years, first as an organizer and then as an attorney. She's seen this kind of harassment up close. And it starts getting a tenant psychologically, you know, because if here's this um, landlord with a lot more resources and knowledge of the law, continuously harassing you and trying to psych you out. Like I give the analogy of in sports to get into your head um, in some way where they awaken that voice in your head that will instill fear in you. What if they're right? What if I don't take this money? What if I do end up on the street? What if they are going to be able to get me out one way or another? Might as well just take what they're offering me and leave. Right? So that's the kind of harassment that some tenants are dealing with on a daily basis simply because their neighborhood is now trendy. There's so much that could be done in L.A. to protect tenants. Um, We could pass anti-harassment laws, for example. We could implement a right to counsel program like New York has adopted, at the, where the city's funding um, right to counsel, meeting that the city will provide funds so that tenants could have more access to representation. We need a moratorium on rent increases. We need a more aggressive code enforcement process. And long term, we want to start seeing more changes in how property is being transferred here. We cannot wait for all these laws to happen. We cannot wait for all these things to happen. So the fight continues. We have to protest. We have to put pressure. We have to make things happen. This is the way politics works in America and everywhere else in the world. It's not just inside negotiating with the government. It's also about raising your voice. The civil rights movement didn't happen just because people sat down on a table and said, oh, let's change the law. 
That wraps up this edition of Making Contact, a tale of two heights. This show was produced by Monica Lopez and RJ Lozada. Music was by Blue Dot Sessions, Lobo Loco, Ryan Little, and Black Ant. Special thanks to this week's contributors who both have their own podcasts, Otis Gray, producer of Hungry, and Jesus Hermosillo, producer of This Is Where We Stay. The Making Contact team is Lisa Redman, Anita Johnson, Marie Che, Monica Lopez, RJ Lozada, Sabine Blazin, and Vera Tykolsker. I'm your host, Monica Lopez. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.